This past week, I attended a conference for clergy and lay professionals held in the beautiful, serene area of Shrinemont. The presentation was led by a group called Courageous Conversations, and it helped us add more tools to our toolboxes as we both have and lead conversations about racial injustice. It was a wonderful conference. And if you ever have the opportunity to work with the group Courageous Conversations, I highly recommend it. One of our wonderful conference leaders, Lakeisha, led us through an exercise where we first filled out a 40 or so question survey about how often we experienced people of our own race or color represented in society around us. The questions were about things like the availability of bandages in our skin color, the ease of shopping without suspicion, representations on television. After that, we tallied up our scores and then we lined up in a line according to our score, highest on one end, lowest on the other. Now, most of the white people in the room had very high scores. We are well represented in U.S. society. Products are marketed specifically to us. TV characters look like us. There are fewer suspicions cast upon us due to our race. Our friends of color in the room had significantly lower scores as they are less represented, less supported, and more frequently doubted. It was a deceptively simple and deceptively powerful exercise. As we lined up and looked around, Lakeisha reminded us of W.E.B. Du Bois' 1903 quote, the problem of the 20th century is the problem of the color line. And she looked up and she said to us, and here we are, well over a hundred years later, and we have the color line right here in this room. Following that exercise, various people in the room shared their experiences to the whole group of us, stories of pain and frustration, all together in this room. Several hours later, a few of us, some good friends of mine, were processing the exercise over drinks. And we noted, to our own shame, how we almost missed the point of the color line exercise. Because we were, instead, having feelings of smug self-righteousness because we already understood these principles. We had already read Du Bois. We already knew about the color line. We were breaking our own elbows, patting ourselves on the back for being so advanced instead of staying present in the room while people all around shared their stories and shared their pain. You can tell by my voice that I'm still frustrated with myself for the way that I treated my colleagues in that exercise, even if the snobbery was happening silently and inside my head. Because the Holy Spirit has a wonderful sense of humor, 
This experience came to mind instantly when the very day after the conference ended, I read our gospel for this Sunday. And in it, the religious leader says all the right prayers and knows all the right things about God and then bumbles into casting unfair judgment on a fellow worshiper. Ouch. The tax collector, on the other hand, who is likely a swindler if his professional reputation holds true, prays with genuine openness of heart and desire for healing. Jesus' use of the Pharisee in this parable is not, we should be clear, a comment on the suitability of Jewish authority. It is rather a comment on anyone whose piety has become so overblown that the piety outgrows the faith. Jesus doesn't have a problem with Pharisees. Jesus has a problem with hypocrisy. A writing from the rabbis of Javna, which was a rabbinical group contemporary with the writer of the book of Luke, reads, I am a creature of God, and my neighbor is also God's creature. My work is in the city, and his is in the field. I rise early to my work, and he rises early to his. As he cannot excel in my work, I cannot excel in his. But perhaps you say, I do great things, and he does small things. We have learned that it matters not whether a man does much or does little, if only he directs his heart to heaven. And truthfully, this is the work of those courageous conversations. Those workshops and any of those experiences of formation we have as Christian people working toward being more loving, more understanding, more open, more whole. And that more is not in comparison with our neighbors. It is in comparison with our own selves. Am I better today than I was yesterday? Will I be better tomorrow? In my own attempt to be more open-hearted to the experiences of my black and brown friends and colleagues in the courageous conversations, color line exercise, I ended up looking down my nose at those who have been formed in faith differently. Thank goodness I am not like those people. Part of the brilliance of this parable is that Jesus is reminding us that even Pharisees, that is to say, even those whose entire training is focused on how to properly love and worship God, even Pharisees get this wrong sometimes. The parable reminds us that we all have the chance to do better, to ask for forgiveness when we do wrong, whether we are Pharisees or whether we are tax collectors or whether we are anything in between. We all have the chance to grow closer to God, closer to each other. I am reminded whenever I read this parable that an exercise like the color line is not an opportunity to point a magnifying glass on the flaws of others, 
It's an opportunity, instead, a much more difficult opportunity to peer into a mirror, to better examine my own life of faith and growth. And I am reminded of the gift of confession and absolution that we share together most Sundays. Thank God for that. Because it's a gift that reorients and recenters me and all of us weekly. And it reminds me of my own shortcomings, but it also reminds me of my capacity to be forgiven, to be loved to be one who helps free others. The confession in our book of common prayer, the one we will all do together in just a few minutes, is a communal act. That is, we all do it together. Confessing the sins of the community against God and the larger world. But it's also an individual conversation between each of us and a God that loves us deeply. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you. And how? In our thoughts and words and deeds, in our actions and in our failure to act, in our decisions to act not in love, but in something else entirely. Now, it's easy for us to make a list in our heads of all this week's missteps and then tick them off one by one. And we are absolved. And then we can leave church feeling much better about our own piety, knowing that we, unlike those who slept in this morning, have been forgiven of our sins because we showed up to ask for it. Amen. <laughs> oh, wait. <laughs> but when we go to confession instead with our hearts ready to be scrubbed clean, with our lives ready to turn toward a God who is waiting for us with arms open, we will accept absolution with gratitude and with humility and maybe even perhaps with a bit of relief. Initially, the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector seems to be about encouraging that humility and condemning that pride. But here lies that paradox, doesn't it? Because once we've achieved the appropriate level of humility, once we acknowledge how very, very lowly we are, we kind of feel pretty good about it. We are proud of our humility. Wait, hang on just a second. <laughs> The parable is instead reminding us to turn our attention to that which is of ultimate worth, to God, not to our own brilliance or to someone else's lack thereof. And my friends, it takes a lifetime of practice. Even the high-minded, well-trained Pharisees fail miserably sometimes. I'm drawn again to the words of those rabbis of Javne. It matters not whether one does much or little, if only one directs the heart to heaven. And also to the words of the confession reminding us to delight in God's will and walk in God's ways. 
It is through returning to God that we grow. It is through returning to God that we heal ourselves and our relationships. And it is in through returning to God that we are made whole. Amen.